It's great. It'll work. We've had all types of backgrounds. Uh, sure. Lawrence Tendam was in his man cave and uh yeah i was actually in a mcdonald's parking lot with like a background because i was living on a farm and it was the only place he's like oh man you're super pro i'm like oh no i'm in a mcdonald's parking lot i'm not <laughs> pro. <laughs> nice that's awesome um man i've been i've i probably first came across you i didn't get into cycling until my mid-20s kind of like a lot of american guys and i Probably found your site. You had an article that's still on your website about like SMP saddles. I think you wrote in like 2014 or something. I'm like, oh, who's this dude? Da, da, da. I think you were kind of getting out of things then. As I was saying in the email when I reached out to you, I was kind of getting into them and then found your podcast and just, you know, there's not many Olympians and 14 time national champions, you know, just kicking around. And I just love the message that you put out and so, yeah, I'm just really excited to talk to you about a bunch of different training topics. And I know so many athletes will benefit from this because you come across in what you put out as just having the holistic picture. And I, I really love that. So um, not to blow smoke at you, but that's yeah. one of the biggest reasons why I reached out. It's just like you're you're putting out great stuff. So I hope you feel that about the things that you do put out into the cycling world. Thank you. Yeah, Thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Cool. Go. Yeah. Sweet. <laughs> You're like, all right, well, I'm, I'm good with that. that What's I know. I really the... do appreciate that. Cause the podcast is, you know, it's a lot of time and effort and yeah. energy and, and when you, when you work on it and then you're just praying that somebody's going to get some good out of it, that's mm -hmm. the thing that drives me to keep it, keep doing it for sure. People mm -hmm. write me emails all the time and they're like, Oh, this helped me so much. And that's, that's it. That's the fuel that keeps the fire burning. 100%. It's the random emails from like a guy in Europe who's da 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 and this and and it's always amazing to me how many people might follow you and never say anything but then utilize what you've been doing for 6 months and say hey and I had this grand fonder I had this race or my kid had this and we can't afford a coach and we did this and we rode more endurance da. and then they go yep. off and it's like wow this is so freaking cool like the internet has made this amazing and that feeling yeah I mm -hmm. It's incredible. What got you into coaching from, you know, you're have this incredible race career and so many people burn out in this sport or they just get tired of it. It's, it's a lifestyle. When were you coaching towards the end or what made you, or when, then when, when you were racing, when you're like, man, maybe I'd want to get the coach or how, what was that transition? Like it was, there was some bit of natural transition to it. I, as an athlete, even I had people who would come to me and sort of ask me questions about things. I just seemed to be one of those athletes where people would, would approach me and be like, what do you think about this training? Or what times do you think we're going to ride in the pursuit at this world cup? Mm. And they were just sort of, I guess they figured out that I was sort of a dorky analytical person maybe. <laughs> and I put a lot of thought into my own universe. And so they, they sensed that they picked up on that. And that was sort of the, the beginning. Like I started to tinker with a little bit of coaching. I dabbled a bit. People asked me to coach them and I, I took him up on it. And I mean, I remember my first client, I think I charged him $25 a month. Mm -hmm. And that was in the early 2000s sometimes, mm -hmm. sometime. And I, um, you know, it was a full disclaimer type of situation. Like, look, man, I don't really know what I'm doing here, so, but we can try this. And that was the, the genesis of a little bit of a coaching business. But the full transition came when Pat McDonough, who worked at USA Cycling at the time, as the, I think his title was director of competition programming or something like that. He came to me and approached me and asked me to be the track endurance coach for the U S team. Okay. And that was in 2005 or six. He asked me in 2005 
And at the time I had competed in the Olympics in 2004 in Athens and in 05, the LA Velodrome had opened. And that was the one and only time we had world championships there, elite worlds there in LA. And I raced for the team there. And after having a really good world cup season, I had a pretty not great, um, worlds, all kinds of funny stories in that one. But then my idea was, oh, I'll be done. You know, that'll button end thing or button, button up things. And I went forward with that idea and I took the job at USAC, but it became obvious to me over the year and a half that I was employed at USAC that I still had a fair amount of fire going. Mm -hmm. And so everyone sort of saw that I should come back to racing. So I did that and I raced for another um, ridiculously long period of time. Like <laughs> the last time I got paid to ride a bike was 2013 and that was racing European six days. Okay. So I ended up going for another, whatever that is. Yeah. I was going to say, I was like, wait a minute, 2005. That doesn't seem like when I last looked at the results. <laughs> yeah. 2007 is when I stopped working at USCC and came back. And then I raced until okay. 2013. So six more years, I guess. Cool. Of, you know, making a paycheck. Yeah. And that's awesome. In some form. Um, disclaimer there, you know, when you say professional, it's like professional in the sense that you can put yeah. your kids through college and like buy a couple nice cars or professional and like you're eating ramen or there's there's a wide uh huge spectrum. huge yeah. spectrum yeah and i was more on the ramen side than the than the cayenne buying side or whatever but <laughs> anyway so love it colby that's awesome let's jump let's jump into it i you know in in, in your email back you're like hey i'm gonna give some unusual answers probably and i think that's one of the one of the, again, one of the reasons I'm very curious on just how you look at training and the athletes that you work with and just as you being a curious athlete. So one of the most common questions that I've received always comes around heart rate and power. And mm. I came up with a coach that never looked at heart rate. I just recently had a coach that was way more involved in heart rate than I would have ever expected. A lot of people use RPE. I think I've been very surprised endurance riding there's a lot of ways to talk about it. That's going to be my first question. How do you prescribe to athletes a zone? What is a zone two ride to you, I guess we could say? And how do you look at it? Right, right. <clears throat> okay, so yeah, good question. And I know one of your one of the topics you brought me also got into a bit on power to heart rate decoupling and that discussion around zone two mm -hmm. rides, right? And mm -hmm. presumably that's one of the, the most interesting things to look at in a zone two ride is power to heart rate decoupling. It's maybe you could argue one of the hallmarks of gaining some fitness. You know, when you first start out, especially if you have an athlete who's been injured or sick or just got over COVID, or maybe that's me in some cases, you start out and you're doing your aerobic endurance rides, your zone two rides. Um, aerobic endurance is what we would call that in the team. You have coaching ecosystem, but it's the same mm. thing. It's a zone two ride. And, you know, you start out and, and things are pretty dreadful, right? It's like, you've got quite a bit of heart rate drift. And maybe if your athlete's really out of shape, they're doing an air quotes zone two ride, but their power and heart rate are almost equal. <laughs> like 150 heart rate, 150 Watts. <laughs> and you know, things are, things are, we got some room for improvement there, right? We got some growth to do. Um, but really it's about shifting that power to heart rate curve. So you get more Watts per heartbeat. That's fundamentally what we're trying to do in any really equation. The, the hard part is more, well, it's not really hard. I'll say the, the conceptual gymnastics that we go through as humans is we want to, we want to baseline things. We want things to be apples to apples. That's always our lens through which we view, well, just about anything because it simplifies complex systems into terms we understand. And there's nothing wrong with that perspective, but we have to recognize the limits of that 
artificial constraint we put around things. So if you're going to ride your trainer in your basement and it's always 68 degrees and you always got your fan pointed at you on level one and you're, you know, you're, you don't even have a tire on the trainer because you're using a direct drive trainer. So ostensibly, if you lube your chain every 3.8 weeks, you know, everything stays close enough to the same and you do exactly the same 90 minute ride on erg mode and nothing in your system decays, <laughs> then we have this fixed system where we can say, all right, you know, I did whatever 190 Watts for average for 75 minutes, six weeks ago. And now I did the same average power, but my hurry went down six beats or eight beats or 12 mm -hmm. beats. And that's a nice tidy little gaining fitness box. We shifted the power to hurry curve mm -hmm. to the right, to the correct direction. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's in our mind, that's the archetype or platonic form of, of zone two training. And that's kind of what we hold in our minds as the reference point. How many bike rides in the real world do we do that come close to that? Depends on where you live, what, how seasonal you're, you know, if you live in San Diego yeah. or Florida or like flat parts of Texas, you probably can do those rides somewhat year round until the really, until summer in which mm -hmm. case you're getting up at three 30 in the morning for the temperature, not get too hot, but you could do a lot of those rides throughout a year and have a good baseline mm -hmm. because they're flat places and the weather is relatively consistent. I mean, you know, within yeah. the boundaries of weather, right. But if you live in Colorado, like we have winter and we have mountains. If you live on the East coast, you've got all these rolling Hills and stuff. So you don't mm -hmm. have a plate, like your zone two ride is all over the place, no matter how constant you are with your power and cadence and how much shifting you're doing, you're going to get this stochastic outlay. So is it that valuable for you? Is it that valuable anyway? Because it's sort of an artificially constructed, perfectly prescribed way for us to compare fitness. So yeah, it's tidy in the sense that we can say we gained eight heartbeats over a certain duration and a certain average power for this many months, but it's Does it matter? Yeah, it's a construct. Yeah. Like, so, okay. So you mean, must have athletes that come to you and freak out about this. And like, I thought you might, you have... Uh, mm -hmm. I'm going to post obviously your website and other links, but you have an interesting like torque first cadence article that people should glance through to understand that. And when you're talking about the rolling Hills, I'm always telling people use your gears. I live in upstate New York and okay. now I'm in North Carolina. It's like, you can get in the range. It's a range for a reason. And, but like, so what do you think about? Cause it is the Zwift world has, we can make it precise and there's a, I'm going to do my intervals indoors only. And I'm like, don't do that. Cause you're not yes. a Zwift racer. If you're a Zwift racer and you only want to ride inside. Okay. That's one thing, but you want to go race outside. You should be riding outside. What do you think about that? Sort of taking the artificial mm -hmm. to the real world. Should we be even be. Yeah. Is that a good thing or a bad Man, thing? That's, that's a huge topic. Well, it's, yeah. <laughs> I really try to avoid good or bad because okay. I'm not here to tell anybody how to do their stuff, True. right? Good but I point. will say that as a coach, what am I doing? I'm evaluating the physiology of the rider and then mm. I'm preparing them for the demands of their event. Mm. So yeah, if you're like, I'm going to smash Zwift and I'm going to win the $100,000 on the Zwift world mm -hmm. virtual gobbledygook championships or whatever they've got going on that I don't know about. It seems like there's a lot of money and a lot of people with a lot of interest. Mm -hmm. So good. If you want to go do your, that thing, knock yourself out. Um, I'm probably not the coach for you to do that for a variety of reasons. So I'll mm -hmm. just be transparent about that. And I'm not here to say people shouldn't go do that. For me, bikes are about three things. Primarily they're about connection with self, internal knowledge, reflection of my own state of being right. Connection with my body, maybe on harder days, I'm finding limits, but not necessarily. Sometimes I'm finding flow. Sometimes mm -hmm. I'm finding limits and flow. Okay. So that's internal external world is connection with environment. 
Mm-hmm. And in order for that to happen, I have to be riding outside because mm-hmm. this is my home office. It's my basement. I spend lots of time here doing work. I don't need to ride my bike here. I live in mm-hmm. Colorado for a reason. I also happen to believe that humans are really intensely subject to the circadian rhythm. And I'll go, I'll go a little bit out on a limb and say, I think of large majority of today's modern health problems, we are having in a preposterous amount of health problems worldwide. A lot of them are simply because people spend way too much time indoors and on screens, indoors being the first qualification on screens, multiplying that problem. Then you add indoor air quality and EMFs and sitting and a whole bunch of other stuff and then crap food. And you've got a recipe for what we have, Mm. which Mm -hmm. is a lot of people who are really sick and basically mainlining prescription drugs. Okay. Sorry. Coming back. No, I love this dude. (laughs) So So we have this issue. So for me, bikes are about external connection, getting outside, connection with the environment. I want to see trees. I want to move through nature. Bikes are such a beautiful device to see the world, right? It's like walking is a beautiful way to see the world too, but you can walk all day and make it across town. But Mm -hmm. on a bike, you can go on a hundred mile bike ride and go to a city, a little town in the mountains that's like 50 miles away and see all these little towns and all these goats and chickens and, you know, trees and shrubs and rivers and valleys and all the cool things in between. And it's like this whole adventure and it's all human powered. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. So that connection. And then the third connection for me is social, right? I mean, there are times where I just want to be a hermit and go ride my bike and cycling is a hermit sport to a degree. Usually it's made up of, at least in my era, it was made up of people who basically were too puny to make the football team um, and got smoked on the wrestling team all the time, like me. So you end up being a cyclist. You're like, oh, I, I can do something. I'm going to go ride my bike for four hours in the rain and look how tough <laughs> I am. And then voila, sure enough, you can. So, um, oh. but there, but those days aside, when you want to go on a group ride or connect with your friends or like have, just have a great conversation with an athlete or a, a longtime friend, like there's mm-hmm. a great, great chance to do that on the bike. Mm-hmm. So there's this whole social interaction. And then there's, there's even a subset of that, which is like group rides that are good. I have a whole pod on how group rides should die. And I do believe that in some cases they should, but I went on a great group ride this weekend with some buddies and we, we had the magic day. We rode to Carter Lake, which is about an hour and a half North of Boulder. It's like a total local staple ride. It's got this Mm. little climb up to this dam. I think I've been up there. Yeah. Probably have, if you've been here and that this day was like super unusual because we had no wind in the way out and we just, we just loafed out and socialed. And then we kind of went nuts up the climb and recombobulated then on the way home, we got this magic tail one that came out of nowhere. Mm. And we almost never get a, a win from the North in Colorado. It's almost always from the West. So we had the magic day. It was like, and we just had this like 10 person pace line and we were just ticking it off and everybody, nobody got too excited. We kept it, you know, we kept it in the box over the hill. So people weren't, the thing didn't explode. Nobody got too ego-y or swingy. And we just had this, this rolling smooth pace. And that's an experience that the bike really in a group, you can only get that, you know, you can't get that on Zwift. That's not a Zwift Mm -hmm. thing. Now Zwift has its own social network where you talk on the microphone and I don't know what people talk about. They talk about the same things we probably talk about on our group ride. Mm -hmm. That's cool. But anyway, so physiology, the rider versus demands of their event. Right. And so when someone comes to me, if they say I'm training for unbound gravel or Leadville mountain bike 100 or the tour of the Gila stage race or Joe Martin or whatever they've got or national time trials championships. These events all take place in the outdoors. We, when we want to, when we fall under the illusion, I'll say of trying to precisely control our efforts, it's an illusion. Why? Mm. 
because of course, everyone wants to maximize their chances to do well. But if your coach writes you, let's just pick a random workout, like four by 10, mm -hmm. as hard as you can go threshold, whatever you want to call it. So, okay. If we're, if we're being perfectionistic, let's just use generic numbers for a safe example. You know, you've got a 300 watt threshold. So, all right, you're going to try to do each of these intervals at 305 watts, just a little tick above threshold, your, your model threshold or whatever. And you're, you're thinking to yourself, well, if I do one at 303 and one at 298, that, that 298, man, that's seven watts under my perfect target. That's unacceptable. And then when I show up to the line at nationals, this effort, if I do that interval suboptimally, you know, for the next eight weeks, that's going to cost me that seven Watts will cost me. And I think what people do is they make an erroneous jump. I don't know. I, I have a policy to try not to imagine what happens in other people's heads, but this is, this is what comes to me from conversations is people. I think they think there's a one-to-one -one there. Like I'm going to be seven Watts short. Like you're putting pennies in a bank. Because we mm -hmm. use that type of analogy all the time. You know, you're mm -hmm. building a house, you're laying it brick by brick, or you're putting pennies in the bank, and then later you cash it all in on race day. And those are good analogies, but it's not one-to-one. -one. It's not that if you were seven watts short in your time trial effort, because, and, and here's the erroneous part. It's not that you were seven watts because you couldn't do the seven watts, or you weren't fast enough, or tough enough, or whatever. It's because you were in the real world, and you couldn't make the seven Watts because a couple cars passed you or you were had to go around a corner or you, there was a little downhill or something. And so you think that by being on Zwift, you're going to be able to better conform to this workout prescription. And that's going to make the difference. Mm -hmm. I would argue you are wrong. Mm -hmm. in that instance. You are incorrect. This is a fallacy. This is an illusion. Especially because then if they have a windy day and they're like, well, it was windy. I cannot push through like wind just totally screws me up. I'm like, well, wind is a different force. And yeah, if you go and there's like gusting winds, you're now going to be riding over threshold, under threshold. And oh, wait, you didn't do over unders. You did your 303 watts exactly for the, yeah. Perfect example. Huge, Perfect example. huge yeah. adamant of that. So yeah. when you, okay, so this is good. And then what do you think about within the zones, where to ride within the zones? Is there a target? Does it depend on something like RP day to day? Because then I started getting, okay, I get the zone two idea, but do I ride the high end or the low end? Yeah. Also a really good question. So this is where I'll give you probably what's a, a minority opinion I would expect in the coaching world, or maybe okay. an unpopular opinion. Sweet. I think a lot of coaches write training based on zones and, and their method of operation is Okay, we test the athlete, we give them their Zwift test or their 20 minute 95% or their 30 minute or whatever, whatever they're doing, their inside test maybe. And they we get their zones. And these are their zones and their zones are range, you know. And so their zone two is we'll just use generic numbers again, 180 mm -hmm. to 200 or something like that. And we'll say that your um, threshold is 270 to 300. That's your zone, mm -hmm. right? So again, the perfectionistic mindset will be like, well, if my threshold is 270 to 300, when I do threshold, threshold efforts, I'm going to do every single one at 299 mm -hmm. you know, or 301 or whatever. And that's going to make me better. Mm -hmm. But I think this is born of a, of a very old school belief system, uh, which is constructed on erroneous foundations. I think from what I can figure out, this really comes from the idea that uh, when you are bodybuilding in the gym, this is the next thing, the, the most archetypal thing we have to compare it to. 
when you're building muscle in a gym, you're going to do bicep curls. If you don't fail on the last rep, the whole set was useless. We were told, I was told this as a like eight-year-old kid, like when you're a strength trainer, when you do push-ups, you have to fail on the last rep. Otherwise the set didn't mean anything. That's interesting. It was, like, it was the ultimate HTFU like, <laughs> like prescription welded into me as a young kid, right? And I think people carry that same mentality over to intervals. And the, but the way to do that is in a, in a threshold interval, yeah, you can, you can finish the threshold interval and be like the last minute. I, I think ideally people imagine that the last minute of every threshold interval is going to be like blinding pain, you know, mm -hmm. and eyeballs bleeding and breathing out of every orifice and whatever. And otherwise it wasn't a useful threshold interval, but the reality is that muscle hypertrophy and aerobic metabolism or even glycolytic metabolism are not, they don't respond to the same stresses. They're not the same mm -hmm. mechanisms for change. So we don't need to go to failure all the time on the bike. And in particular in sub maximal aerobic work, there is no go to failure, mm -hmm. right? What is failure? What you're doing when you train on a zone two ride, or even when you add tempo ride or sweet spot or zone two plus, you know, or Inigo training or whatever you want to call it. Like all of these little subtle gradations of everything below threshold down to like what you and I are doing now, which is sitting or maybe even down to sleeping. Anything on that spectrum responds to, it's a, it's a load that your system will feel and you can hit various thresholds for performance. One of them would be hydration levels right? Which is subtle because we don't have many good mechanisms during exercise to tell us when we're dehydrated. We have mm -hmm. thirst, but as the science showed us 20 years ago, like you're way past when you're thirsty, you lost it. Mm -hmm. So hydration is one thing that I think is still not that widely recognized that definitely impacts sub maximal aerobic performance. Mm -hmm. More obvious one is blood sugar, right? Mm -hmm. Glycogen depletion. And depending on how trained well, well trained the athlete is and how hard they're going and what they ate and you know, how fat adapted they are or not, blah, blah, blah. You get all these different little thresholds. So you could go for, uh, this is why you can go for a three hour zone two ride on one day and be like, yeah, that was super easy. You know, I feel like I should have done more. And then on another day you go for the same three hour ride and you come home and you're like, oh, I'm so shattered. What mm -hmm. happened? Like that just seems so hard the last half an hour. And most of the time in my experience as a coach, that comes down to the context of caloric input, mm -hmm. right? If you were, if you were, if the tank was full in the, in the previous 72 hours or maybe a week, then that three hour ride could be really a breeze. Conversely, if you like ran it on empty or you were a little bit nervous, you got up and you were like, Oh, I got a little pudge right here. And a little, a little, I'm a little uneasy about this hill climb. I got coming up in two weeks. I don't need that. I don't need that piece of bread or that pile of rice. I'm just going to have a little more lettuce tonight for dinner. And then you do that two nights in a row, consciously or subconsciously. <laughs> and then you go up to that three hour <laughs> ride. And you're like, Oh my God, that was so hard. Why, why was he half wheeling me the whole day? Normally we just ride at the same speed. Right. So, okay. A lot of talking and not many answers yet. Hold on. So, so I guess what I say, my unpopular opinion is that, I don't really recommend, I don't write training in zones so much. Mm -hmm. I'm not telling people to ride between 180 and 200. When they okay. give someone intervals in particular, I'm not giving prescriptions like I want you to hold 360 for this many minutes. Mm -hmm. What I'm doing is I'm really working with the athlete from an RPE perspective. And okay. there's several reasons for this. 
So let's let's pick a harder workout as an example, just so people can understand what I'm talking about. Let's say uh, four by five. Like we might call that VO2 max. Okay. Yeah, depending a little bit on the re recovery interval and and the cadence, perhaps. Because mm -hmm. you give somebody a four by five maximum effort, but make them at 50 RPM. That's a whole different workout than four by five at self-prescribed cadence. Do you or, give that 50 RPM? Uh, I wouldn't give that particular combination of metrics very often, but okay. I do prescribe workouts at 50 to 55 RPM in some instances. Yes. Who's, who's getting that? What's the instance? A lot, a lot of my athletes are. Oh, um, anyone who I think would val would gain value from, I'll say um, longer durations of increased muscle tension. Okay. Right. But we have to make sure the athlete's bulletproof enough to where they're not going to go, mm -hmm. you know, having a, an MRI, otherwise known as a medial rotational instability, which will give them knee injury pretty quickly. If, if they're, if they don't have a good core control, if their pelvis is all over the place, if I don't know their bike fit is pretty bulletproof, then I'd be a little cautious about prescribing those efforts. Also, you have to look at injury history, right? If they're like, oh yeah, my left knee hurts every spring. It's like, okay, we're going <laughs> to, yeah, really we got a problem. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, we got our four by five maximum and we'll, we'll call we'll say that's VO2 for the moment. That's fair. Most of the time that would be the case, especially if we keep the recovery on the, the trimmer side. What would your recovery be? Not to be that guy getting granular, oh. but like some people are like two and a half minutes, exactly half other are yeah. one to one. <clears throat> Depends a little bit on where the athlete is. If you're given two and a half minutes in between and we really want it to be high quality efforts, like, like significantly above threshold. Mm hmm um, the athletes got to be pretty well-trained to handle mm -hmm. that load. That's okay. to really do that workout. Well, you've got to have a very high level of fitness. That is a good aerobic base and a well-trained, well-trained glycolytic system. So you can, you can keep that lactate level from spiking too much and not be swimming in it. Cause if you're trying to give someone VO2 and you really want them to have higher quality efforts, that is power output. That's above threshold and you shorten the recovery too much, then you're at risk of them just blending into a VO2 effort or mm -hmm. sorry, into a threshold, threshold effort. effort. Yeah. Which maybe, maybe that's what you want is to really put them underwater a couple of times to get their body to respond. Mm -hmm. um, depends on where they're at and how sharp you want the knife. So to mm -hmm. speak, if you're further away from your event, you might do that and just say, look, this is gonna be rough, man. I want you to just, so this goes into the conversation about RPE. This is why it's valuable. When I write a prescription, I might say something like four by five, and I'll just say maximum. I want you to go as hard as you can for four by five. And then, and then I get lots of questions. So many cool. questions. Right. I was like, smiling as you're saying this. Like, <laughs> Does that mean that I go as hard as I can for a minute and then like, you know, just totally nosedive and, and then I'm hanging on for dear life after that? Does it mean that I have the highest average over all four efforts? Like, does that mean I'm going really easy for the first minute of each effort? Um, like, you know, what cadence should I do? Like, should I be bleeding at the end of, out of my eyeballs at the end of every five minute effort or just the last one? You know, should I negative split the last one? Like there's all kinds of ways people play these games. And part of this comes back to a concept that one of my mentors, Matt Walden taught me, which is about the second simplicity, right? The first simplicity is when you start to learn a new complex topic, whether it's cycling or golf or I don't know, algebra, you, you're like, yeah, this is, this is pretty easy. You know, you go out and ride your bike and then you learn all the things like, oh, you could do one minute intervals and you can do five minute intervals and you can change your cadence and you can go, you can do intervals on flats or uphills and 
you could stand up out of the saddle or do seated. Wait, there's time trial bikes. And you, you figure out the millions of nuances. And then things get really complicated. The second simplicity is when you realize how many common variables there are between all these permutations of choices. And really at the end of the day, four by five maximum, two and a half minutes in between. So part of this is I, I'm stealing this from Siler. Let the athlete solve the equation. You give them the prescription and you see how they solve the equation. So there are two, there are two beautiful things there. One is you get to learn how your athlete views intervals and what, how they solve that. That tells you a lot about their mentality. It tells you about their weaknesses. It requires you to look, it requires more thought. You have to look through the data and be like, hmm, okay, I see they went out way too hard in this first one and then they tanked and then they kind of hang on for dear life. And then in the second one, they they went way too hard for about 20 seconds and then they remember what happened in the first one. You know, you can kind of read all the little yeah. mental battles that happen in a workout like that because that's a hard workout prescription. Like four by five maximum, when you have a driven athlete, that's a hard ask. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. requires motivation, requires freshness, right? You were there driven athlete. I mean, some athletes is not even worth giving to, but the, yeah, that's a, agreed. That. Agreed. So I let the athlete solve the equation, but I'll, I'll give them a little bit. If they are really poking and prodding and they're super lost, it's like, okay, you got to give them a little something to chew on. I'll tell them, I want you to focus on the perceived exertion maximum, but I want you to think intuitively about this workout and understand, like imagine yourself doing it. Imagine the road you're going to be on, pick a road that's going to let you execute this workout, right? Mm -hmm. And for that, you have to think about the road surface and the traffic and the turns or not turns and the cadence you want to do. If I tell them self-prescribed cadence, a lot of riders will pick a climb because they feel that they can make more power better on a climb, which may or may not be true. Most riders associate making more power with pushing harder on the pedals. But of course, we know power is made of two components, right? speed and force or speed in circles, cadence and force in a circles torque. Okay. So we can do either assuming the other one stays constant, we can make the other increase and you'll get more power, but hence you can pedal more quickly and gain power. That's what I'm getting at. But I'll ask athletes to imagine this workout and imagine the rest interval. That's really important. And think about it and feel it for a minute. Like you've only got two and a half minutes to recover from a really hard five minute effort. So now your job is to intuit how hard you can go for each of those five minute efforts and still not completely blow to smithereens. And if you do blow to smithereens, that's okay. You're not a failure. You didn't miss a day of training. You didn't, you know, completely flunk. You're not going to get dropped in your next five races because you missed eight minutes worth of work. So just chill out a little bit and come back home and fill out your ride report. And then we'll discuss it and we'll see what we could do better for next time. Because mm -hmm. that learning opportunity, I think part of what I'm saying in this whole RPE equation is it's not only the physiological benefit of going on and training hard. Cycling is also about knowing yourself. In fact, that is the first tenant of being an athlete. It is the by far the most critical aspect of any athletic journey. Mm -hmm. Bar none is it's an examination. Like, what did I list in the first thing about cycling? It's internal connection. It's knowing yourself. Like when you're three and a half hours into a road race and you've got 50 K to go or 30 K to go, and someone clicks up two gears and attacks on a hill, there's no power meter that will tell you whether you can go with that rider at that moment. And if you're looking at the power meter, you're looking in the wrong place. You are mm -hmm. worshiping the altar of data and you should be worshiping the altar of your own internal knowledge, your own knowing. 
can I follow this person or not? Or is that guy an idiot? Cause I know he's going to blow up in a minute. I'm going to sit right here on this wheel and chill out until the mm -hmm. next attack, or I'm going to attack myself over the next roller or whatever decision you make, but it's all based on knowing it's all based on intuition. So when we do a four by five maximum, I'm offering the rider an opportunity to not just make their engine bigger, but to know themselves better. That's so there's more than one way to train an athlete. So I don't, I wouldn't say 360. I wouldn't say 340. What I do is I say, I want four by five maximum. And, and here's the subplot to that. You have to educate the athlete and instill confidence in them that some days, maybe the last time they did a four by five maximum, they got whatever, 350 average for all four. Mm -hmm. And their last one was 340 and they were hanging on for dear life. Okay. But today they go out and the first one is 330 and they're like giving themselves a root canal. <laughs> right. So now we have a conundrum for the athlete on the road. Do I finish the workout? Am I completely tanked? Am I like, is this a bad day? Am I going to put myself in the hole or give myself mono or something? If I do this or rip one of my legs is going to fall out of the socket or should I keep going? Am I, am I being soft? You know, yeah. like, am I just being weak? Can I go harder? And again, I, I let the athletes solve that equation, but there are, I can tell you from experience, there are days when you should just go home <laughs> of course. And then there are days where it's like, this is a 3.30 day. Now go make 3.30. Treat it like 3.50. Just go as freaking hard as you can. It's another brick in the house. Maybe one of the most important bricks because on race day, ultimately, we want you to be able to show up to the line knowing that no matter what, worst case scenario, you can make four by five at 3.30. That's mm -hmm. your baseline. Mm -hmm. What we're trying to do is raise that baseline. We don't want the miracle day on your race day. That's, I don't want you to depend on that for your race day. Mm -hmm. That's not a well-trained athlete. That's someone hoping for Hail Mary. Hoping right? to win the lotto on race day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. don't do that. When people don't set a PR on a race day, which to me, I try to explain, like if you're doing a one minute max effort, that should definitely be harder than any one minute in a race, or you are literally going to stop pedaling in the race and get dropped. But I think the point that you make about education and learning and you something about like you know finding the right place to do these intervals i think in even that menial task when especially newer cyclists newer to doing intervals like well, wait this doesn't work on this road but this works on this road and i found this hill then you understand like when the guy clicks two shifts two clicks down what does his speed look like on that type of hill that you have now trained on that you just know it doesn't matter what's like you're saying it's oh god that guy's going really fast i can't even get to that or that guy's yeah. gonna blow up and you know and you just learn so much about is <laughs> yourself moving through space in the real world. And that's mm -hmm. what winning a bike race is. Be the fastest person moving through space. And so, yeah, I, I, mm -hmm. I loved everything you just said about just, it, it simplifies everything. Four by five mm -hmm. max. I love that. I don't do that, but I'm, I'm actually very curious. And <laughs> there's a few people in my head. I'm like, I wonder how that person would handle that because they usually yeah. have the 50 questions to every interval. Yep. So what about the, okay, so then you, I'm, okay. So we kind of touched on the heart rate decoupling, touched on the RP, and I think the RP is really a good and interesting point. What about off the bike in terms of strength training? Mm. Yes or no? Mm. Okay. So, well, if I may just add one more thing on RPE before Please. we do strength. Okay. Sure. I'll say this. Add I two think, more things, three more things. Whatever <laughs> else is on your mind. Well, okay. So we have power. 
power is our output. It's, it's the, it's the power you're making during a ride, right? Mm -hmm. It's your, it's your output. It's the product of your metabolic work. We'll say heart rate is the response, the nervous system response to that load. These are two buoys in the ocean of where the heck am I, right? The third buoy is RPE. Now, before power existed and before heart rate existed, you just had the one buoy. You had mm -hmm. RPE and you went up a climb and you went, I think I'm going pretty fast in this climb. About the only thing you could, you could do before those two metrics existed was, would be to look at your, your speed and maybe time yourself from the top, bottom to the top of a climb. And on a flat road and cycling, that's kind of useless because the weather is so varied. Wind has such a huge impact on speed that it's kind of a bit useless. It's not like track running where you can just click off lap times and know pretty much where you are. It's a very mm. different sport. That's why power revolutionized the sport because it was an objective look at our output. Whereas um, running on the track, you could just take lap times. And aside from weather, there wasn't much variation or yeah, wind impacts running speed a little bit, but nowhere near what it does cycling. Mm -hmm. And indoor velodrome time, same thing. Like power meters weren't that revelatory for indoor track cycling because you got an indoor velodrome. So your times are your times, right? But we have these two waypoints, our output and our response to that load, and then our RPE. What we're saying when we talk about an example of this road racer, you know, deciding whether or not to follow an attack or deciding whether to lead the group on a climb or, or follow wheels on a climb or whatever all these intuitive decisions come from RPE. It's from knowing yourself, the first tenet of being an aerobic or an endurance athlete, or really any athlete at all, I would argue. doesn't matter if you're a boxer or a martial artist or a motocross racer or a cyclist. You have to know yourself. When we began to quantify things in the sport of cycling, what we did is we, we juxtaposed those relationships. We inverted them. And now power is seen as the only metric that matters. This is why we have coaches like the one that you mentioned who doesn't even look at heart rate. Mm -hmm. And maybe they don't look at cadence or torque either. They don't even separate power into the two constituents or components. Um, and I'm not here to tell that you or anyone else that that coach is doing it wrong. That's not my role. Uh, but I will say that in my opinion, the most important metric for any athlete always is RPE. Nothing else is more important. And for the exact reason we described why. When the, the business end of a bike race comes down, comes to you, is delivered on your plate, the way to know what you got in the tank is through internal knowing. It's not through looking at numbers or analyzing the number of KJs you've used or Watt Prime or how much time you've had in particular power zones or what your heart rate is at that moment. That, that's all just a bunch of gobbledygook. What matters is, can you follow that wheel or not? Mm -hmm. That's the only thing that matters. And that's the only real answer. So... We have to be quite um, particular about the order of operations in which we prioritize these metrics. And that's why I think it's important for us to train as coaches, our athletes to respect and understand RPE, which is one of the reasons I give them these little puzzles like four by five maximum. Now, mm -hmm. power does have a place prescriptively and it can be illustrative in certain points. Um, if you know precisely the demands of your event, which I would argue people think they do more than they actually do. But if you precisely know the demands of what you what you have to make, how many watts you have to make to do a certain task, and you want to train for that power, you can. The danger there is that we run into a 350-330 problem. Because if you're convinced, if you have all this data and you have the world's biggest nerd coach who did 
uh, all the analysis and all the spreadsheets and all the WKO5 and all the, oh, what's that program called that projects your time on a course? Oh, my win, not my Winsock. Um, yeah, Be time split. Best bike, bike split? Bike split. Yeah, best yeah. bike split. So they do the analysis of best bike split and they put in the GPX courses and blah, 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 blah. And they dork out on all the different permutations. And they're like, in order to win this time trial, you have to make 382 watts on this climb of eight minutes, blah, blah, blah. So we're going to duplicate that in our training. And 382 is your magic number. And you're out there going as hard as you can and you're making 351. Mm -hmm. And now what happens? Mm -hmm. The race is three weeks away and you have a meltdown mm -hmm. and your training is arrested and stopped, or you have some sort of existential bike rider crisis and you suck and you're not good enough and you're not, you know, then, then what happens? Most athletes, many athletes will spiral into this, this negative wormhole of crappiness and self-reflection, and they can spiral right out of a good training program. And meanwhile, I have personally experienced many times where I've been making 350 as a metaphorical number when I needed to be making 382. And I did it for months on end, banging my head against a wall. And then I show up to a race day and somehow magically I made 400 mm -hmm. and I smashed everybody. I've also had the inverse happen. Mm -hmm. But the fact, the bottom line is if you become obsessed with the data and derailed by this preconceived notion of what your data has to be in order for you to win or be good enough, my opinion, you're just, you're, you're missing the point of the sport because it comes down to this belief system which is one of my most hated expressions. I rarely use the word hate because I really don't hate many things other than leaf blowers. Can you hear that? Do you have one going on in your background? Yeah. Yeah. I can't hear it actually. But okay, good. Because I, I was like, God, blowers. I hope that is not like super loud right now. No, of no. course, they come at the perfect time. I was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> low, low blow, no, Kobe. I didn't, I didn't say that because of that. Uh, but I will say I hate leaf blowers. And if you don't understand why I hate leaf blowers, then just think about it for 30 seconds. And if you still don't get it, then don't worry about it. But um, what was I hating on? Oh, the one my, thing. my most hated expression, which is a year. It's of European origin. I'm quite certain. The expression is Watts are Watts. Mm. I hate this expression. It drives mm. me insane. Mm. Um, and it's born off a certain belief system. And there are instances where I'll say it is true, but I hate the expression. I hate mm. it. And it and it makes riders miserable. It makes them cease enjoying the sport. Now, the fact is, if somebody's in that 350, 382 equation and they can't get their heads wrapped around it, and they're just really on the struggle bus, um, if they didn't have a power meter and they only had a heart rate monitor, they would never know any different. They'd just be out there making three who knows what, going as hard as they could, and they would show up to the race day, and maybe they win and maybe they wouldn't. But mm -hmm. they would still enjoy that training block in a different way. So mm -hmm. from that expression or from that illustration, hopefully I can demonstrate to people how power meters can make us quite miserable. And we need to be careful about our relationship with technology. We could go down. I mean, there's so much in that too, because I think that the people making things overly specific, especially when it comes to a road race, when someone's like, oh, it's a 15 minute climb. I'm like, you've done the race before. What about the seven minutes before the climb? And what right. about when people full gas it at the top of the climb? Like if you've just maxed out and there's still three minutes to go, yeah. people aren't riding a threshold when they see people getting dropped. The fastest guys are hammering even harder. And then even someone will say, well, what about a time trial? It's super, it's, it's exactly perfect. I did a mm -hmm. podcast with Zach Gregg, who's won the amateur time trial twice, I believe, is on the podium for the uh, pro. 
and they do all their TT stuff in the winter. And he's like, dude, I'm ra- it's not TT specific. Like I'm racing all the way up to it. Like, yeah, I'm on my TT bike, but I'm not doing two by 23 minutes at this or two by 42 minutes, whatever, you know, his goal yep. is. He's like, it's just not, that's not the best way to do it. And so mm-hmm. hearing people say that I think is helping other athletes get away from this. Like you're saying overly nerdy. We're not saying nerds are bad. Smart people are great, but it's overthinking this so much that it is just mm-hmm. and then the psychological aspect which you've hit on in a bunch of different ways is just wrecking athletes and i'm like it mm. too much um yeah do you do you think then um and this maybe could be our last interval question then duration sure. of intervals when you're doing a four by five are you ever saying hey go longer or you know how would you pick duration is it based on what you just think they're weak at based off of a PD curve or an event or cause now, and the reason I ask this is I'm also hearing from more athletes. They're doing less, really long stuff. Like there's no one that I've talked to in a while doing three by twenties. Maybe Colby Pierce's athletes are, I'd love to hear that. It's a lot of 10 minutes, a lot of 12 minutes. And it granted it's mm-hmm. a lot of American racers. So I think that we're talking European and you're doing long climbs. That's a whole different type of racing, but what's your th- duration? How are you kind of pinpointing that? Yeah. Good question. Uh, I would say it depends on, again, the demands of their event to a degree. So if somebody's getting ready for Joe Martin or they're getting ready for Tour of the Gila, two different events, right? So just so everybody knows what we mean, Mm -hmm. Joe Martin's got a lot of short, punchy stuff and it's got a lot of short climbs to the line. So you've got to have a very good glycolytic system and a high-end aerobic, a very sharpened sword for that type of effort, right? Maybe efforts of less than 10 minutes, I would say. Whereas Mm -hmm. Gila has some climbs that are 30, 40 minutes. It's got in the Gila monster road race, you've got an hour long climb to the line. So a bit of a different demand. And so we have to ex- ask the question, what are you preparing for? You know, if you're preparing for unbound, it's a lot of grinding type of stuff or steamboat, right? Long climbs there, that type of race. But really for me, prescription of duration of efforts comes down to a few variables that I would say I could use to select. One is demands of the event. The other is the current fitness of the rider and kind of what their tendencies are, what their what their natural traits are. So you're evaluating the physiology of the rider versus the demands of their event. So you have someone who comes to you who's really glycolytic, highly anaerobic in nature, uh, by nature, and a big sugar burner, and you want to prepare them for Leadville or Unbound, right? They're doing an Unbound 200. They're going to be on their bike for 14, 16, 18 hours, depending on the speed of the athlete. Okay, so how do we turn that type of engine, which is really like a, a very intense burn into something that can be a much more slow burn type of situation. So what kind of efforts are we going to give them? They could probably benefit from some longer efforts, but then we have to see, we also have to evaluate what terrain they live in. I can't give someone 20 minute efforts that they live in super rolling terrain as a coach. It's not effective. Like mm-hmm. as a coach, I have to be careful about prescribing efforts that the athlete can actually execute on. Otherwise it's just frustrating. If they live in Boston, and they've got like bike paths to train on, I'm not going to give them two by 20 because then they become a pathlete, yeah. right? And that's dangerous for them and, da- and dangerous for oh. everyone else. And right. So what do so, you give them then? Right. So it becomes quite creative. Maybe we do have them on the trainer for the longer mm. efforts here and there when it's selective, mm-hmm. even in warm weather. And we, we balance that with outdoor riding. You have to get creative or right. you do the best you can. You give them, um, you can get a fair amount of aerobic benefit from, 30 second maximal efforts with longer recovery that are peppered over a long endurance ride. 
Mm. And so they have 30 seconds of clear road and they know they can really whale it. This is an unconventional training technique, but you give them eight, 10 of those over a four hour ride, mm-hmm. then you're, you're, you're really, it's like you're flexing the mitochondria to a maximum and then letting them recover and you're peppering that with endurance. So it's one way to solve one of those equations. But another principle I'll use to just to prescribe uh, duration of intervals is what physiological system do you want to train? Right? They're narrow, they're natural barriers for that. And we can use some software to look and see where somebody's exact duration of their glycolytic system is for a maximum effort. But it's not real rocket science. Like you, you make somebody go 45 seconds flat out, flat stick. Most people are going to be near the end of their glycolytic rope. So if you mm-hmm. know that the athlete needs that type of effort and we want to spin up their ability to, to make those kinds of efforts, then we just hit them with that duration effort. And the recovery window depends on, again, what characteristics do you want to maximize? Do you really want to make them glycolytic? You give them long recovery. If you want more, um, if you want to blend and you want to make sure that they can respond to change in pace because they tend to be diesels, but you're not necessarily worried about making their glycolytic engine bigger, then you might give them 45 on, 45 off or 30-30s or Tabatas, right? These types of fluctuation intervals. Mm -hmm. Athletes who have a really hard time with change in pace, this is something that's hard to quantify. You just have to know it about a rider. You know, Mm -hmm. you can tease it out in questions pretty quickly. Like, do you like criteriums? What do you, how do you, how do you, how do you do in group rides? Oh, I really like it when we get on the big roads and I can just, you know, plow along at 28 miles an hour. Ah, okay. So, uh, that would be my biggest thing is the physiology of the rider, how they present now versus the demands of their event. So that will dictate what kind of intervals you want to prescribe, but also what are their strengths? Do they have a really high VO2? Uh, naturally, but they're a younger rider, but they, they can't time trial their way out of a paper bag. Like they just can't concentrate for 20 or 30 minutes straight. Then maybe physiologically, they don't need the the efforts, but mentally they need a longer effort, a long tempo. Mm. I tend to prescribe a lot of tempos, um, and progressive tempos. I like those a lot. Uh, not a lot of tempos, um, all the time, but I'll say it's a, it's a relatively common prescription at the right point in someone's program. And I'll also sometimes sneak it in at the end of a ride. So I'll give them a four hour ride and then I'll give them finish with a 25 minute progressive tempo, but the last five minutes are going to be full open. So progressive within the duration, it's not like a 87, 90, 93. It's just one interval where you stair stepping upwards. Yeah. Or what would you mean by by progressive? By progressive. Yeah. Good question. Cause you could evenly space it. And I do that sometimes. So I might give them a 15 minute. That's like five minutes of tempo, five minutes of threshold, five minutes at VO2, for example, Mm -hmm. or maximal aerobic power might be a better Mm -hmm. way to say that. Um, But a more common prescription for me is what I call uh, um, ramp to infinity, otherwise known as a um, buzz light year. Yeah. Buzz light year. Yeah. Or (laughs) uh, I'm forgetting the mathematical term. Uh, Yeah. Curve that goes like this. Jesus. (laughs) <laughs> the word is escaping my brain at the moment. Um. Oh my god, dude. Yeah, it's right on the tip of my brain. We just lost all credibility. We did. Hyperbola. <laughs> um. Science. Yeah. Those things. Those yes. curvy lines. Mercury with chalk. So, um. Anyway, an infinite curve, we'll call it. And it. And so most of the big, you know, if you give someone a twenty-five minute tempo, twenty-two and a half minutes of it might be actually within the tempo range. And then the last, you know, then they're in threshold and then they're at MAP. But the way I really like to have them do it is um, 
really ramp up in the last few seconds, like a full on sprint. And I like to see if they can hit even sprint power in the last 10 seconds. Hmm. And the reason I like that is one, I think physiologically it sort of builds momentum and it breaks people out of the threshold ceiling that they tend to live in. Hmm. But the second is that it, I think physiologically it, it places an additional load on the mitochondria in a way that probably isn't too quantifiable. You only grew in a few seconds of very intense work, but you're doing it at the end of a long block of work at the end of a long ride. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of cumulative weight uh, of stress on the system there. So mm-hmm. it's just one of those things that I carried over. Probably it comes down from, I would say it's probably a track thing that I adopted and and adopted into road training because on the track, you tend to do a lot of efforts that sort of build an intensity like that. And when you finish the effort, it's really flat, flat, flat out. Like, like one thing track separates from road is that the intensity just goes up because everything's mm-hmm. shorter. Mm-hmm. So intensity. Well, also, you even on the road though, if you're like turning the screw on somebody that's literally like a little bit more, a little bit more is this person breaking, breaking, break, and you're just going and it's like, okay, I'm all in. I'm going to go till I break and hopefully they break first. So it's very specific yep. to that as well. I mean, I yep. like that. I've never, that's interesting. The old school expression we used to use for that is called the Russian step. Mm. So it's where you get on the front of the Peloton and you start, you know, at the top of the block and every, however often, every minute you just click down one gear harder, one gear harder, (laughs) one gear harder, one gear harder. And if you're the strongest guy in the group, (laughs) then eventually you just rip the Peloton to shreds, but you have to be significantly stronger than everyone else to actually do that. I like that. The Russian step. I don't get to do that too often, but it'll be fun (laughs) to think about. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Let's hit strength. Curious where you, big topic. I think I know the answer to this. Yes or no. Is it worth it? Yes. Yes. For everyone or maybe for who not? The the majority of athletes, I would say yes. And uh, especially when... anyone Sorry, over. That's okay. Um, anyone north of 40 is a, is a solid yes. Anyone north of 50 is a definite yes. I am a believer that muscle mass. I I'm, I'm on the Atia train, although there's some scientists who disagree with this, but Peter Atia has a whole thing about projectors of longevity and also lifespan versus health span. And some of his projections um, would heavily lean on the idea that VO2 and muscle mass are two of the biggest, biggest indicators of what your, how long you're going to live and also what the quality of life you're going to have will be like. And he's, he's a nerdy science guy. So he digs into all that stuff. And I just let him dig into that and make his conclusions. And then I listen to his pods and listen to his arguments and then just, uh, decide intuitively if I think that he is doing his homework correctly. Mm. And then I test it for myself. And in my own N of one, I found that when I strength train, things definitely go to better for me, but I also recognize readily that I'm an N of one. And also I have a very particular set of characteristics. I'll say some of the most common misconceptions around strength training are the the one you hear the most is like, Oh, I'm going to put on muscle and climb slow. So I would say for 99.98% of all athletes, this is a complete fallacy. Yes. And if you don't believe that, go find someone at your local gym who is massive, like absolutely yoked to the nth degree and ask them what they did to get that big. And the answer will either be steroids or it will be, I ate 12 eggs a day, three meals a day, 12 eggs, three meals a day, plus protein powder, plus another 1500 calories of steak every lunch plus. And then I lifted weights for six hours a day for nine years. And then I went like this, like it requires so much effort to get huge. Yes. 
And there's also a very strong, there's quite a good body of science to indicate that there's a cross interference effect between gaining muscle mass and aerobic endurance exercise. And that basically you can go to the gym and lift your brains out. And then you go out on the bike for three hours. And it's not that you won't gain strength, but gaining muscle becomes very challenging. Mm-hmm. Now there are athletes who break this rule, of course, like bioindividuality rules everything. And there's some guys who just look at a weight and their biceps go and get bigger. <laughs> but usually those athletes are not endurance cyclists, right? I've said that in a different way. I said, go to somebody in the gym and tell them you're going to get jacked on lifting two days a week. They will laugh you out of the gym. I bet my chest a- is going to get big. I'm going to be like my jersey. I'm like, oh my God, dude, please. That's a great way and to then- say it. The other way also is I realize that an athlete might not fully understand like a two minute max effort if their arms are not a component to that. And so I said, trust me, when you go do some rows and you do that for eight weeks and then you go smash that KO1 that you can't get, you're doing it at like 210 and someone's got two minutes, you're going to be like, oh my God, I see the bike differently now. Like the Mm -hmm. arms matter. And just, and I guess my last soapbox is just that, to your climbing point i'm like don't you don't your arms get tired when you climb if you don't lift and they're like well yeah but that's all like i sit down i'm like what if you could stand longer right what if they didn't get tired right. so mm. well, okay let me ask you when in the season so now and we've convinced now they maybe okay lift hey lifting might be something but do i only do it in the winter do i do it all year round how do i manage mm. that right 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 Good. Yeah. That's a great question. I get that one a lot. And sometimes resistance for, to lifting comes from people who have tried lifting during the season and then they're just always wrecked. And the answer or the response I would have to that is, well, you're probably not quite doing it in an optimal fashion. Mm-hmm. So definitely lifting in the winter is good. Uh, primary reasons are cycling has lots of negative implications for our physiology and our, our long-term physical development and health. Uh, you know, cycling. So in the gym, when you lift weights, you have concentric and eccentric movement, right? Concentric is when you're moving with the fibers, meaning the fibers are getting shorter under load. Eccentric means the fibers, the muscle fibers are getting longer under load. So an example of that would be if you're doing a back squat, so you have the bar on your back and you descend down into the squat, your quadriceps are preventing your your knees from exploding. Their fibers are contracting, but they're being pulled apart. So during that eccentric load, that's when you actually do the muscle damage because it literally rips the fibers apart. You can see it in a microscope. If you take uh, some muscle tissue after a hard lifting session or after a CrossFit session and you look, the fibers are like shredded, they're all destroyed. And that's how you get stronger is they glue back together. And then the fibers become resistant to that load. Um, If you CrossFit yourself to death and you give yourself rhabdo, that's when you've got so many exploded muscle cells that there's a bunch of basically chunks of muscle in your bloodstream. And then you you have mm-hmm. real serious health problems. So don't lift that much. But can it also happen from to like a 300 mile gravel ride? Sure. Yeah, I, yeah. Rhabdo is just a function of too much load relative to what the system is yeah. capable of handling. So yeah, if you're training four hours a week and then you go do the unbound XL and you go like you shoot out like you're in a cannon, you could give yourself rhabdo for sure. Yeah. No okay. question. Yeah. So it's just a function of the the demands of the event being way too much for the for how trained the athlete is, mm-hmm. um, which usually comes down to ego or ignorance or both. So in cycling, there is no eccentric load. There's only concentric load. 
the muscle fibers only are shortening as they uh, um, produce load. The exception to that would be if you were a riding a fixed gear in San Francisco with no brakes, mm-hmm. right? Because then you'd have to backpedal down all the steep climbs. Mm-hmm. So we don't have eccentric load. So when we go into the gym in the winter, we give ourselves eccentric load. That's why we can make ourselves dreadfully, fantastically sore in the first two weeks of lifting. If you haven't been lifting for a while, so you want to really proceed with caution for the reasons we just talked about. You don't need to make yourself excessively sore. If you're having trouble walking up and down the stairs, you overdid it a bit. So we, we have no eccentric load. We also have limited ranges of movement on the bike, right? When you extend your knee at the bottom of the stroke, it doesn't extend all the way to full extension or neutral, right? It goes part way. And so you get adaptive muscle shortening. So your hamstrings start to become a little bit shorter. Your calves become a little bit shorter because you're doing thousands and thousands of reps without full ROM, mm. right? And then we're only moving in the sagittal plane, which is the plane in which you run and walk. So then let me ask you this. Do you have people lift cycling specific or whole human specific? Great question. That's, that's exactly what I'm outlining. Okay. In the winter, I would have people choose a strength training program that offsets the shortcomings of cycling Mm -hmm. to help balance them out as an athlete. Because in order for us to keep riding our bikes for many years, we have to counterbalance, swing the pendulum the other way during the off season to make ourselves more bulletproof and give ourselves a better systemic ability to execute on life and strength. And then during the season, especially when we're approaching our peak event, I might have someone do a more cycling specific program, which would entail specific movement patterns that replicate the archetypes of movement we find on the bike, which fundamentally are a hip hinge, which is equivalent to a deadlift Mm -hmm. and lunges, which is simply pushing down with one leg and then the other, and then the one and the other. Mm. Right. So I like a lot of bent over rows, um, split stance, deadlifts, uh, Romanian or Bulgarian split squats, apparently in strength and conditioning, Romania and Bulgaria, are the same country, because those two terms are used interchangeably all the time. But <laughs> the idea is it's a, it's a, a lunge with your rear foot elevated. That, probably. so I was gonna say, that's what, when I looked up what I had to do uh PT and it was RFE split squat. I'm like, Oh, is this Bulgarian Romanian? Wait, which is this? What's the yeah. difference? So I did so yeah. much Googling those. I will say to anybody else, they were extremely difficult when I first started doing them. And I'm a huge fan of the split squat. So yeah, I, I've, yep. this was probably the first year that I've, I could probably say I've been seriously, I should say seriously cycling lifting for maybe five years now. And this is really one of the first times that I got more into unilateral or, you know, one leg at a time. And I've definitely found some interesting benefits from that. So that's, I'm Mm. happy to hear that seconded from you. So that's a great, um, subtle point, unilateral exercises versus bilateral exercises, right? Mm. So how much cycling is bilateral? Mm Mm-hmm. None. You think none, exactly zero. (laughs) So, so, okay. Is a squat, a bilateral exercise? Yes. Is a deadlift, a bilateral exercise? Yes. So how much bilateral movement in the gym should we do in season versus out of season? Well, if, if you're me, you would put more of that in the off season Mm -hmm. for most athletes, Mm -hmm. not always, but for most athletes. And then I would put more unilateral stuff in season, right? going with that philosophy of we're balancing the athlete more in the winter. And then in the in season, we're, we're bringing them more towards their sport specific honing, uh, mm-hmm. sharpening of the blade. We might say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Love it. Yeah. So I'm going to put a link and I'm going to recommend that people read your article on diesel fuel versus rocket fuel. And I think since you've kind of already outlined that to mm-hmm. get the most from you in the time that we have, what 
there are so many, and I don't want to call them fads. There are different techniques, whether it be fasted or carb restricted training or low fiber diets before races, what types of those topics do you find effective and maybe not to poo-poo anything, but some that you're like, I wouldn't really spend time doing that. Mm. I'm not sure I totally understand your question. So I guess like, are there, you know, besides focusing on just macros, I'm sure there's always athletes trying to find that extra 1%, which I think is great. But I think sometimes it's like, well, I'll just, what do you think of carb restricted training or fasted training? Okay. Yeah. So, um, well, I like the point you just made about athletes looking for the 1%. I think our sport is unfortunately rife with people who are, we'll say, um, tripping over dollars to pick up dimes, mm. right? They're looking for that little, mm -hmm. whatever, that marginal gain or that 1% or they're chasing Watts. And the reality is they don't have their found their fundamentals okay. really dialed. So if you're considering fasted training or carb restricted training, I think it has its place. Depends a bit on, again, the physiology of the athlete. If you're heavily, heavily glycolytic, meaning you are a sugar burner and for years you've gotten up and had um, cornflakes for breakfast or pop tarts, and then you go out and ride your bike for five hours and you're really good at short hills and you tend to suck at long climbs and you're pretty explosive and maybe you're one of the faster sprinters on your group, then all the, and you're also kind of muscly. These are things that tell us you're probably more glycolytic, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. That's not good or bad, but what are the demands of your event? Now you're training for something really long and your goal is to win a 200 kilometer road race or, you know, whatever, or do a multi-day stage race. Okay. So we need to improve your ability to economize. And we, so we might do that with some carb restricted training. We might do that by forcing your body to run off fat and for an athlete who's heavily on the glycolytic cycle, their, their VLA max is really high. That can be a pretty rough curve. So we need to be careful with it. Right. Um, we also need to understand some of the subtlety of it in that an athlete who, if we have two athletes side by side and they weigh about the same and they have roughly the same CDA and they do a four hour ride in zone two or aerobic endurance. And, but one is highly glycolytic and the other is highly aerobic the highly glycolytic rider in that aerobic zone will relatively speaking, even though they're about the same speed, uh, sorry, the same CDA and making the same power in our hypothetical example, they're working at a higher rate aerobically because they're training the aerobic system. And that's not a strength of that rider. So they're bordering on maybe high inigo zone two or low zone three tempo pace mm -hmm. for the whole ride. And they're also burning more sugar than the aerobic athlete who's burning more fat. So the glycolytic athlete is burning more calories, right? Mm -hmm. So it gets, well, did I say that right? No, they're not burning no, more calories. No, they would be calories, making the same, but... amount of, the same amount of KJs actually in their ride. Because if they have the same CDA hypothetically and they do the same ride, they both get 3,200 KJs or whatever it is. Okay. It's just that one of them will burn a lot more sugar, the glycolytic mm -hmm. athlete, obviously. Mm -hmm. And so that engine is running effectively at a higher RPM. That's the way to think about it. It's like mm -hmm. they're driving in second gear all day and the aerobic athlete is burning, is running in fourth mm -hmm. at the same speed. So their aerobic engine is air quotes, more efficient. Mm -hmm. And so these two, this is why Sebastian Weber at inside, for example, says that we should really be basing prescription training zones off of VO2 and shades of VO2 rather than FTP. 
because FTP would give us the same training prescription for these two athletes mm -hmm. if they had the same threshold. But if we look at VO2, then we see a much different picture because the glycolytic athlete will normally have a lower VO2. It would also so, be... Go ahead. Well, so their zone two pace, if we're strict, if we're strict about, we want them to train in zone two, the glycolytic athlete should be going slower, mm -hmm. right? Otherwise, or if they go the same speed as the aerobic athlete, we accept that they're effectively training harder, mm -hmm. right? Um, there was a really good article that illustrated this point further. I'll send you a link to it later. If you, if you haven't seen it, I think I've got it bookmarked. It was about how some, I don't remember who it was. Some, some sports scientists did some analysis of Marcel Kittle's tour de France and they realized how much harder the tour was for Kittle than it was even for the riders who are leading GC. Oh, wow. Because That's if you think about it, super interesting because both GC riders and Kittle have to be at the front on all the sprint days. And ostensibly they're hiding as much as they can in the pack for the beginning of the long sprint days. But imagine now that same example of the aerobic rider versus the glycolytic rider, which is Kittle versus our GC rider, which is, I don't know, Froome from that era, right? Mm -hmm. So they're going up a climb at 10%. Well, Froome is at, you know, 55 or 60% of his capacity, but Kittle who weighs, you know, 40 kg more or whatever. <laughs> and he's glycolytic. He's running his engine like at maximum the entire climb, probably on every climb of the whole Grand Tour. He's basically close to maximum. Mm -hmm. And he has to be even on days where he's out the back because he has to make the time cut. But then on the long sprint days, Froome just gets shielded by his team all day, whereas Kittle has to race at the end. Mm -hmm. And even in time trials, the same thing is true. Now, granted, Froome has to go as hard as he can in the TTs, but Kittle basically does too, because maybe not in a flat TT, because Kittle, then the CDA equation flips a little bit in his favor. But the point being is um, sprinters have a hard time in grand tours because even, even on medium days, Kittle has to ride out of his skull just to try to make the lead group in hopes of winning the stage. So he, when you think about it from that equation and how much, I mean, this is something I learned from Peter Keene a million years ago at a lecture he gave about Chris Boardman and his preparation for his hour record. He said, yeah, we use the Tour de France as prep for the hour record because basically the Tour de France is fundamentally just a massive, massive aerobic overload. That's all it is. It's just this insane amount of aerobic work. And yeah, you've got little bits of glycolytic this and that and recovery and all these little other physiological variations. But when you really zoom out, it's just huge aerobic load. Mm -hmm. And that's what prepare. And what is an hour record? It's aerobic power, mm -hmm. right? So then we consider our glycolytic athlete like Kittle against someone like Froome. And Froome is by nature a very aerobic creature. And mm -hmm. Kittle is by nature a very glycolytic creature. And if he gives up too much of that glycolytic power, he won't win any stages. Mm -hmm. So he can't. we can't just train him like Froome all the time. Even if we could assume that he would adapt to that physiologically, then he loses his bread and butter, which is to go win stages. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. I'll have to get that article from you to post. Cool. I've never thought about that way. Yeah. Cause those guys, man, even <laughs> just seeing them on the climbs, it's like, I feel so bad for you. This cannot be fun. <laughs> You're just trying to survive. What's, what's, um, what do you think in terms of recovery is maybe not utilized or what's the best tips for athletes to try and recover. And I, I just, I think recovery is not focused on a lot. And I think someone at your level of sport understands that. Um, there's another athlete that we just had on where they said, well, are they overtrained or are they just under recovered? And I said, yeah. that's the great, I, I need to personally use that because I know 
athletes they go out and they smash and they have a nine to five job and they have this and then you know tuesday comes around after a mega weekend like dude i'm what's going on i'm tanked i'm like because you haven't even stopped like you're Mm. you're not superman so what do you think maybe what have you seen athletes doing correctly or on a Mm. positive spin what do you think athletes should be doing to to really take advantage of recovery yep okay so two things three things i could offer there that I think might be useful. One is what what's our normal working man or woman's um, paradigm? Cycling's a bit of an unusual sport because when we're on the weekends, what we do is we go out and we ride four or five or six hours. Even we, meaning me now, I train, I don't train that much anymore. I train like between eight and 12 hours a week, 14 hours here and there, but I'm usually working and bike fitting and doing all the things. So I just don't have time to train that much. That's fine. I still like riding my bike. Now I've been doing this 35 years. So when I go out on a weekend and I ride four, five or six hours, I can fake it pretty good because I've just been doing it forever. But somebody who's been in the sport for three or four or five years and they fall in love with the sport and they start to watch the tour and the Giro and see all the drama and the crashes and the sprint wins and all the cool stuff they get to see in the time trial bikes. And they're totally in. Cycling is an unusual sport because they start training four or five hours on the weekend. But I can presume that someone who watches basketball, pro level basketball, they don't train like a pro basketball player does. They don't go on the weekends and shoot hoops for nine hours or six hours. They Mm -hmm. probably do it for an hour and a half. And then they're like, all right, let's go have a beer. Mm -hmm. But we do for some reason. So there's a bit of weirdness in our sport. It's just a cultural thing. And it's also, it's just cycling. Like cycling is an endurance sport. So you go out and do it for six hours. Okay. So here's the problem I see. Uh, People undercook two things in particular, they undercook sleep and they undercook calories. So if you look at a working person's week of riding, I'll lay out a really typical example of what someone might do during a seven day period. Monday is usually off. Friday is usually an easy ride. That's typical. Sometimes it's Thursday. So that means Tuesday is like a fast group ride or maybe some intervals and Wednesday is maybe fast group ride or some intervals. So it's maybe 90 minutes, 60 to 90 minutes. And hopefully you're not getting up at 4.30 a.m. and doing that on Swift, but that's become more and more common. So we're just going to jam more into our day. So what did we do? We disrupted our circadian rhythms. We sacrificed an hour and a half of sleep and we jammed in more young oriented smashing activities before we go to work all day and smash the things. Okay, we can do that sometimes, but for most people, you're not David Goggins. You think you are, but you're not. So burning the candle at both ends like that is just going to make you go. But um, so sleep is one of the things we undercook. So, all right, we have our fast group ride on maybe, you know, or intervals on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And if you're riding indoors, you get bored. So you do a trainer road or a Zwift and you go really hard. So it becomes like, bam, bam, all this short, intense stuff. All right. And then Friday, we'll say is easy. Maybe you go for a lunch ride with your buddy. And then Saturday is sometimes a two or three hour group ride, but more often it's a five or six hour group ride because it's Saturday and you're free for the weekend. Woo-hoo. Mm-hmm. And then Sunday is like, Ooh, we're recovering and licking our wounds. Or if you're a stubborn bastard, then you're out for another four or five hours on Sunday. So what do we get? We get this massive disproportionate expenditure. We have three or 4,000 KJs, 5,000 KJs on one or two days of the weekend. And I'm willing to bet that most of the Tuesday hangover fatigue is because athletes do not fuel the tank correspondingly and they're in a negative energy balance on Tuesday. 
Mm. Like, do you know how much more food you have to eat Saturday night and Sunday morning and Sunday night to recover from 10,000 KJs over the weekend or 8,000 KJs of work over the weekend over baseline, which a different discussion is whether that's a healthy training cycle, whether that weekend warrior training hit is really great for you or not. Um, you know, I already gave myself a hall pass because I've been doing this forever. So blah, 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 blah. Look at me. I'm neat. But I mean, there is an old man strength thing in cycling for sure. And I also, I'll tell you after years of getting dropped by, you know, Mario Cipollini and everyone else at the tour of Georgia, like I've become a ninja at hiding in a Peloton. So when I go on a group ride for four and a half hours on a Saturday and I need to hide, I can hide. Right. And that's not, I'm not blowing sunshine up my own skirt here. This is a skill that was born out of necessity for survival on a Peloton. <laughs> but so it, it can impact me a lot less than it can someone else who's out there chewing more wind or, or maybe in the wrong gear at the wrong moment or doing whatever they're doing on their group rides. So I think people under fuel on the Saturday night, like it's an extra whole meal. Mm -hmm. But if you're riding your bike for six hours during the day, you ate breakfast, you ate your oatmeal and your, maybe your egg or two eggs, hopefully a little bit of fat and protein in there. And then you went and rode all day and you maybe had your gels or your ginger cookies or whatever you ate, your pop tarts or whatever you ate on the bike. Hopefully something a little less processed and a little more whole foodish. I was like, damn, wait, what are these recommendations that Colby's giving right now? These are now? not recommendations. <laughs> these are, these are common things I witness. Okay. <laughs> okay. And then, then you come home and you're like, oh, I'm really hungry. And you have, I don't know what your avocado toast or hopefully not your protein shake, but that would be a common thing your recovery shake. I'll let you, I'll tell you, I'll say it right here. Like the best recovery food is actual food. Have a Turkey sandwich, have some rice with a little bit of fish. Then go, go on that for a second. The why no shake. Yeah. I, there's a basic, basic rule for me in diet, which is if you can't find it in a, on a farm or in a forest or in a lake or an ocean, you really should eat as little of it as possible. Okay. And what is a shake, if not the most refined food on the planet? Less yeah. refined foods are always your first choice. The exception for that, there is an exception, and this is where endurance sports really turns people's head into a pretzel, is when you are racing or training really hard, I'm talking like light speed stuff, like race day, unbound, whatever, Gila. At that moment, the single most important fuel for you is straight sugar. And the harder and longer you go, the more sugar you need. Mm -hmm. And this is something that really, um, it's a complete reversal of everything that is healthy about the human body, which illustrates the fact that competition is not really actually a healthy thing in many ways for a human body. Also an unpopular opinion. It's just not, no, yeah. nothing natural about it. Like yeah. how did we evolve? Like what is threshold? Remember marathon died. He died when he got to the city at the end of his marathon. <laughs> he killed over from exhaustion. So how smart are we? Like, okay, let's just break this down for a second. This is a bit of a tangent. Bear with me, please. I love tangents. Cool. Okay. Let's imagine we're in some caveman era, right? We live in a tribe of 80 people. What's our daily exertion look like? How do we hunt? Okay. We went from quadruped to biped. We grew big brains. We got sweat glands. We, we began to use tools. How do we hunt? We find a herd of antelopes. We jog after them for a few minutes. We are the worst sprinters in the animal kingdom by a long range. So they go, wham, they just smoke us. They're off over the horizon. But now we have our brains and our tracking systems. So we walk for two hours and we find the herd. There they are. We track them because we're smarter than they are. And then they go, ah, and they go, boom, and they outsprint us again. And then we jog for another hour and then we find them again and they go, Whoosh. and then we jog. And by this time it's four in the afternoon. 
and we have sweat glands. So we're hot, but they are overheated because they do not have sweat glands and they're covered with more body hair than us. So they start to move a lot more slowly. And then maybe one of them just goes, I can't deal with this. You've seen a dog or, or a, yeah. animal, a four-legged animal when they really overheat, they literally just stop moving. They can't move. So that's a gift for us. We just walk up and go, you're dead. That's lunch or dinner. But maybe they're moving more slowly and then we have to sprint for 20, 30, 40 seconds, maybe a minute at the most. But if we sprint longer than that, they're already gone because they're so much faster than us. Mm -hmm. So what did our day look like? A little bit of jogging, a lot of walking and one or two sprints. Now, okay, that's scenario one. Scenario two, what happens if we get attacked by a neighbor tribe? Are we at threshold for more than five minutes? Probably not. Mm -mm. Five minutes is probably about it. Maybe a longer battle, 10 minutes of high stress. What happens if we get attacked by a bear or another predator? 30 seconds. You're either, you either make it up a tree and the thing gives up or you're a bear snack or a leopard snack. My point being is this sport, like we're ingesting high amounts of easily accessible carbohydrates with low fiber to go as flat out as we can on a bicycle, which is a super obtuse Victorian contraption to go riding up and down mountains at half hour chunks at a time at threshold. There is no natural scenario ever that we can imagine where we would be at threshold for more than five minutes. So is it good for us? I think that's not the right question, but is it something we evolved to do naturally? I would argue, no, it's not. So if you think that you can, and I, this is me talking, like I'm the world's biggest bike dork and I've been riding my bike for a number of years and I did all the bike races and all the hour records. So I recognize we have to understand that context. But what I'm saying is if we think that we can ride for two, three, four or five decades and do all this threshold time all the time, for those of you who are addicted to threshold and all you're doing is obsessing over your FTP, I would question whether that's uh, a choice that is healthy for your mitochondria and your well-being over the long term. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know the answer to that. Some people might do threshold for many years and just be healthy and live long, happy lives. And I hope that is the case for you. I'm just saying, think critically for a moment, especially if you're having recurrent health problems. Is this a choice that is in my best interest? I think I would even be the one to argue that if someone is obsessed with their threshold, they're not thinking critically if they're riding so much at threshold and start to look around and understand why the endurance, why the slowly plodding along towards the animals is going to help you and then go harder, do VO2 max, which you mentioned the guy who is talking about uh, Peter Atia with longevity of life. That's, do you know Alan Cousins? He's out in Colorado also. Yeah. Yeah. He had just posted about the trying not to have your VO2 max decline and what your age and VO2 max looks like when you're 70 as a cyclist or endurance athlete versus the normal human and how you can still be pretty damn fit when yep. you're really old and how that's yep. going to relate to your human wellness. So I just think it's like, if someone has a knee problem, it might not be your knee, it's something else pulling on your knee. Like, don't just focus on the one thing, look at the whole picture. And so it's yes. like, Threshold yes. addicts, please do more VO2 max, ride more endurance. And guess what? Your threshold will go up. I promise you. <laughs> and get in the gym. Get in the gym. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I totally derailed us there. Your original question was about what, how people are under recovering. Mm -hmm. Right. So, okay. One is they're getting up, sleep they're sacrificing more. sleep. Yeah. And we have to have a balance there. I get it. People have busy lives and you have your athletic goals. So rather than getting up. There. Have you read um, or heard of Why We Sleep? 
It's a, I have heard uh, of it. I haven't read it yet. It's yeah. worth a listen. I just want to throw out there for people. If they're curious about why you need to sleep more, I'm a huge fan of sleep. So I was like, I don't need to read this book. And I read the book. I'm like, whoa, this shines so much interesting light on a lot mm-hmm. of different topics of sleep. So didn't mean to yep. derail the derail, but just so people can pick that up if they want to listen mm-hmm. to it. I've also heard many um, snippets from that book and it feel like it's, um, it's worth checking out and it's not a dense read. It's like, resource. yeah, yeah, it's kind of fun, fun book. Mm-hmm. Good understanding. And, and from, <clears throat> I'll say it this way, like, remember that right now you and I today, we can ingest more information in one day than someone who lived in 1899 does in their, did in their entire lives. That's crazy. So when we have, when we listen to a podcast where we got guys like me and I'm malfomining all this experience and information, and then we have recommendations like books like Why We Sleep or Peter Atiyah's site or Alan Cousins' site, it's so easy for any of us to become overwhelmed and get confused. Mm-hmm. And especially then when we do take the time and effort to dig into things and we see conflicting opinions from experts. Okay, so... I just want to offer a little bit because I think we're at that threshold where we've offered a lot of a lot of information. So maybe people can find this helpful in that navigation of this landscape. <clears throat> For me, it always comes down to the N of one. I think what's happening right now, it, just as people are worshiping the altar of power as the end-all be-all of cycling performance, culturally, I'll say that I think a lot of people are worshiping the altar of science and they're looking to scientists, air quote scientists, for all this information and they get lost. They feel like then until they find the right scientist to tell them what to do, they don't know what to do and they're paralyzed. You know, it's the paradox of choice problem. Like which pair of Levi's do I buy? Cause they used to just be five Oh ones, but then they're five elevens and five thirteens and five nineteens and acid wash and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, what do I do? How do I pick the right sports nutrition drink to go the fastest possible? What intervals do I do? So there are two sides to this equation. One is the intuitive understanding the, the intuition is fed by there's a priori knowledge, which is stuff you just know and you don't know why. We've all had these moments of like, I don't know why I shouldn't eat that piece of fish right there, but I, I know I'm not going to eat that. Mm-hmm. And then later your friend has food poisoning and you knew why. <laughs> we've, we've all had moments like that here and there. And maybe we've had some have more than others. That's a priori or instinctive knowledge that you, you figure out. But instinctive knowledge also can develop and it's fed off of technical knowledge. So when we learn things like what is glycolytic metabolism, what's the difference between glycolytic metabolism and aerobic metabolism? And you have an understanding of that. Then you go out and you do efforts on the bike in your group ride and you start to put it together. You go, okay, I know that glycolytic riders eat more sugar and aerobic athletes can run off more fat. And I also now know that aerobic metabolism consumes lactate that is produced by the glycolytic system. This is all starting to make sense. And you have these, then you, it feeds, the, the technical knowledge feeds your intuitive understanding. Then you put it to the test. And the test is your N of one. You go, okay, Peter Atia says, I should try these kind of intervals. Well, I'll go try them. You try them and you go, oh, I really suck at those. <laughs> or, wow, that really turned some things on that I've never experienced before. So what I'm suggesting is that as we navigate this complex landscape of YouTube and podcasts and videos and books and all the information we have from all the experts, all the people that are teaching now, part of which was brought about by COVID, everyone decided they were going to teach, which is in a good way, you know, in a way it's a good problem to have, but as a consumer, it gets confusing is you absorb what you're going to absorb, let it stick and then test it out. N of one. 
you're by doing that, what you're doing is you're internalizing your power. When you don't know what to do until someone tells you what to do, you're externalizing your power. Mm. And I see a lot of athletes who come to me just confused and they just want to be told what to do, which leads to the worship of how many Watts do I do for this effort? I'm not going to tell you that. I want you to end of one it. I want to give you the idea, the concept, and then have you go experience it. That's how you accumulate understanding through experience. So hopefully that's helpful. It's super helpful. And I, I think, you know, there's this, when you talk about the science now, there's so, I, research is great. Science is amazing. But we are getting in this realm where people are now saying, well, if there's not a study for this, that means that not, that's not true. And I'm like, that's not yeah. science. That's not how that works. Like people have a study to prove that something works and then there might be new stuff that comes out, but it's, hey, this is a really great thing to do. This is work for some athletes. Well, where's the study? It's like, dude, there's no one doing a study on this. Like this is just experienced knowledge from other athletes. Like you should go try it on yourself as your end yes. of one. So yes. I love that you said that. It's, you know, I don't want to be a, bro science guy or an anti-science guy but i want to mm-hmm. apply the science in the way that science is meant to be applied especially to something as you said complex landscape like an endurance sport like cycling there's just so much going on that we try to drill down and i can find myself being guilty of this as well i'm not poo-pooing on people who are trying to nerd out and geek out but i'll you know it's very easy to get caught up in wko finding the things that are wrong and it's like yep. okay just take yep. a step back take a deep breath brendan like think critically about this and move forward. So I love that you said that. Mm-hmm. My last question for you, you have obviously people who've definitely listened to, the, to your podcast, who have seen your Palmares, the experience, the growth, you're clearly a hungry and just you take in a lot of this and analyze it and think about it. What excites you the most about training or coaching and cycling kind of as we go into the future here? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I would say one thing that comes to mind is well, one is the growth in, in this might be a tired example. Uh, some people might roll their eyes a bit, but I think the growth in the gravel world is really cool. A mm-hmm. um, lot of cool events coming out of that. I think that <clears throat> we're going through a bit of a dark era in the U S in terms of road cycling, like road is really dead here. It's, it's really sad to say, but it is so dead. I mean, there's so few high level races to do and that's unfortunate to see. And I think that's a product of many different factors. Um, what do you think are some of the biggest ones? The Lance era brought, drove people to road. And then, then, then of course, all the things happened with Lance that happened and then it fizzled out a bit. Uh, I think congestion of roads and crowding of cycling popular areas has driven road cyclists off the road and onto gravel. That certainly happened in the front range in Colorado where I live. No question. People are getting hit all the time. And Mm -hmm. so people just choose to ride their bikes on roads where there are less cars, Mm -hmm. which is probably a good thing in many ways. And that necessitates, it doesn't necessitate a gravel bike. You know, people, old school people are, I used to ride these same roads on my road bike. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But you were less comfortable doing it. So (laughs) <laughs> um, I, I also used to go up my local climbs in, in a 39, 21, you know, cause that was the smallest gear we had. <laughs> my friend um, who was in France was like, if you're, I, I was like, you race with a 25 all the time. He's like, dude, if you're in more than 25, you're not racing. And I was like, oh, it's so hardcore. <laughs> I, I don't know, even own a bike with only a 25 on it anymore. Yeah. But I live in Boulder. So anyway. yeah. 
Um, also I'm 50, so there's that, but I think, so I think that's exciting to see that, um, part of cycling growth and that community come together. And I think there's a, there's a cool thing about gravel where you can start a race with Peter Stettner or Nathan Haas and be on the start line with them. I mean, even though you're 300 riders behind them, most likely, or maybe more, mm -hmm. that's still kind of neat. Uh, mm -hmm. we'll see how much that changes in the coming years. Cause right now you can't do that on the road so much anymore. Um, that's cool. I think that we're starting to see hopefully a distillation of devices in the last 10 years. We've seen this explosion of gizmos come out and some of them have been worthwhile and given us insights. And often other ones have been like, what is this thing? We don't need this. So hopefully we're seeing a crystallization of what data actually moves the dial for athletes and what doesn't. Hopefully that doesn't come at the expense of intuitive understanding and perceived exertion, which are still, no matter what metric you're tracking is always going to be metrics feed understanding. I'll say it that way. They feed intuition. That's the proper order of operations. You don't worship the metric. Hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm also excited for like, it's cool to see the sport evolve in ways that make it safer for athletes, which may be maybe a, a bit of an odd thing to say, but we have seen instances in um, in Europe, in particular in road racing, where people are just doing dumb stuff. And finally promoters are starting to come to their senses. You know, it's like the next wave of like, it's probably around 1992 or something where they finally passed helmet laws in the world tour Peloton hmm. back then was the pro tour Peloton. It's the next wave of that. Like, like, uh, the other day we saw that finish line crash at the Giro where Cavendish slid across the line on his shoulder. Yeah. And one of the comments, the the commentators made in the coverage I watched was, well, that crash with the old style style barriers, it would have been a lot worse because the barriers might've exploded into the group and caused this huge mm. island, right? That's a, maybe a weird thing to say that I'm happy about, but I think bit by bit, we're making progress in those types of things. And the fact is cycling is a weird ass sport, man. Like it's been around forever. And we used to ride bomb down mountains at 55 miles an hour with nothing more than a hairnet. And slowly a little bit, we're, we're starting to figure out like, this isn't the best idea always. Like human bodies are really fragile. So we need to be cautious about these things. And so I'd like to see progress being made in that because no one wants to see an athlete, you know, run into a fence post and, and shatter a femur or worse. Um, that's just not ideal. On the other hand, we all love the sport and we love the fact that there's something really romantic about ripping down a huge Alp or a rocky mountain descent. And or a North Carolina descent. I mean, well, see, I will say to that as being an amateur cyclist, that that is amazing when it's me and like three people, the intensity of doing that in a bunch, which actually Phil Gaiman, I love when he put, he was going down a descent and like he rode up next to some guy and he's like, dude, we were screaming down and like people are not basically in my lap. And he looked over at so-and-so and he's like, holy S. And the guy's like, welcome to the world tour, dude. And just, I can't, fathom how like we get to watch races and just how insane and intense it is people see it as like oh it was a five-hour race but like the mental load that you guys went through and go through um it's been interesting talking to some of these younger guys i've had some like uh action riders on and they've even brought that up of you know you go over to europe and you're doing these huge races with 180 people it's just a different beast and i think I've, I've only been a cat one. I've gotten to do some, a few UCI races when there's 150 people, 
it is so much different than 80 people. And just doing that at a world tour speed. And I'm like, man, that is intense. So yep. I just, I wish it was something that I would be able to experience um, just to see what that is like. But that's something that people always bring up. Like, man, people mm-hmm. don't get the mental load that these races are. It's just intense. It's true. Um, yeah. After being a six day pro for years, there are multiple moments during six days where I would just be in awe at how fast our Peloton was moving mm-hmm. and the stuff we were doing, like mm-hmm. the exchanges at speed. It's, it's crazy. It is um, crazy. It's pretty cool to experience that. But even while I was doing it, I was in awe. I was like, wow, I can't believe I'm doing this right now. We're all doing this and we're all upright. This is, this is nuts. So, so, you get so are people going to gonna see you on a gravel race? Maybe going for a 50 plus something. Um, yeah. So I did, we are doing some partnerships with POC this year. Uh, Team EF coaching is cool. We did one at Sea Otter already. I got to do the, the hundred K mountain bike race there. Okay. Um, that was super fun. I'll be out at unbound in a few weeks doing that. Sick. I'll be doing the hundred mile race. Cause I'm not an idiot. <laughs> 200 um, <laughs> is I love mega riding 200. I don't know, nuts. man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What's so ColbyPierce.com. What are the best ways for people to keep, keep in touch with you, keep up with what you're doing? Yeah. Thanks. Um, cycling in alignment is my podcast. Uh, we're going to, we're going to do a cross pod here. I'll, I'll wait a couple of weeks before I push that out on my channel, but cool. Um, check things out there. If you want to know all my ramblings and then yeah, ColbyPierce.com. And then you can also check out team EF for information on our coaching program. I'm the director of coaching there. Sweet. And we have a lot of super awesome coaches that I help uh, work with and a lot of colleagues there, Zach Morris. And he puts out a lot of really cool content on Instagram that kind of give the flavor of what we're trying to teach people in our system and our ecosystem. And definitely today, some of the concepts I spoke about are, are core to our, our principles there. Cause I'm helping to write that curriculum, but we've got awesome coaches like TJ Van Carter and, and mm. um, Alex Howes and Emma Grant. So yeah, a lot of knowledgeable folks there. So that's pretty cool. That's um, awesome. Yeah. Cool. One, one, one thing I'll add quickly to that list of things that I think are incoming is hopefully we're going to have like a centralized platform of athlete management data soon. That's more commonly available, like something where we can look at lots of different metrics and have it all be in one place. Mm-hmm. And this is a hard problem to solve because training peaks has some integrations and today's plan has some integrations, but man, every one of those integrations seems to comment of, I'm not a programmer, I'm not a coder, mm-hmm. but it's, it's that typical thing where you, as the end consumer, we're like, well, can't you just wave your wand and like enter some code and make my whoop show up in my calendar? And the coders mm-hmm. are like, you're an idiot. I have no, <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> but that, um, I do feel like data feeding that RPE and feeding that instinct for the athlete is such a powerful tool as a coach. And when we have accessible data, when I can show people trends over time, like, look, man, you lost weight and you actually went faster. Or mm-hmm. you lost weight and you went slower, whatever the trend is. That's such a useful tool for us as a coach. But right now we have these scattered bits, right? We have whoop in one corner and we have our training data, you know, our power and KJs in another, and then we have weight in another, but then we have HRV in another, and then we have glucose, continuous glucose monitors in another. And you've got like five other tools you could use that maybe are useful. And right now they're just all over the place. So I'm hoping that there's some platforms that are going to start to integrate that more cohesively from a coaching perspective and in a learning perspective for the athletes, because we have all this data, but getting it to the athletes in a digestible fashion is still something we're a little short on right now. 
Well, I think also when you're the athlete in the forest, you're at the tree, you're doing your day-to-day workouts and you're saying things like you lost weight, you, you know, you're comparing powers, like athletes can lose track of the big picture, especially when they start to look back historically, because most of them are very, from my experience, are not great note takers, or it's like all their workouts are named cycling. And I'm like, dude, how do you look back on anything? Nothing like, what were you doing? Yeah. There's no yeah. annotations or anything. And so then it's like, wait, your power is 10 watts better. And they're like, oh, well, I was 15 pounds lighter. And I'm like, dude, wait, what? 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 <laughs> this is a big right. detail. And so that's really yeah. interesting. Yeah, it'll be cool to see what you guys do with that. Yeah. It's, or it is a lot. I of... said all these PRs in 2014, but I was living in altitude. And now right. then I moved to sea level and yeah, I said yeah, more yeah. PRs, but, but I never quite got the five minute, you know. It's, this is the problem with data. We start mining all this data and collecting all this data, but how do you interpret it in a useful manner? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. It's, it, it is such a complex sport and there's just so much going on and it is our just innate, like, let's you, I think you started the podcast with like, I want to simplify. I want the formula or there's something on your blog where you're talking about formulas. And so it's just like, we want a plus B equals C and let me parse this out and like, just make it be perfect and easy. It's just not, It's just not that way. It's yep. We, we tend to be too reductionist in our approach. Hmm. And this is where the job of the coach is to, to learn, to assimilate data and then deliver it to the client in a way that is, um, distilled properly, not necessarily simplified, but distilled when you have true mastery of a subject, ideally you can explain concept, very complex topics to your client or your student in a way that is simplified, but still contains the critical essence. Mm. That's the mastery of the topic. So that's our onus as a coach is to achieve that level of knowledge and understanding. So we can do that. Right. Um, but it's also to, to sort out the the crap from the stuff that's meaningful and to still only channel to the client, what we know is that, which is going to move the dial, right? Mm-hmm. There's 12 devices that I can give them, but only two are actually going to move matter to their performance and the rest are just distractions. So we have to redirect, 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 but yeah, but I want to buy the shiny new thing. So anyway, Dude, I love this Colby. Thank you so much for taking the time to yeah. do this. This yeah, is thank awesome. You. Yeah. Thanks for the invite. Any last parting words? Oh, uh, no, I've said all the words. I uh, should, I'm tired of hearing myself talk at this point. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you, man. Guys, thank you for listening to the podcast. Check out his links below and we'll talk to you soon.